4. Philippians chapter 4. And let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord Jesus, um, just thankful, God, that we can gather this morning, that we can uh, come to your word and expect, God, that you'll speak to us, that the Holy Spirit will bring application to our lives. And that's our desire, Lord. We just ask you that you'd come now and touch our hearts, Lord. Every one of us, we need you, Lord, to just open our hearts, God to soften the soil of our hearts for the seed of your word today. And so, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you change us from the inside, Lord? Um, God, we do not want to be just those who outwardly conform to religion, but those who are transformed by relationship with you. And so, Jesus, transform us, Lord. Change us. Change our hearts today, God. Change the way we think today, Lord. Help us to be kingdom-minded, Lord. Help us, God, today to have your heart. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, back here in Philippians, we're going to uh, tackle kind of the first seven verses this morning and then wrap up this series uh, in Philippians next week. And, um, and so I guess... I always like to give us this bearing point to get a bit of an understanding, this lens that we've been looking at uh, the Philippian letter through. And, and what we've seen is this, as we've been cruising through, maybe you haven't been here with us visiting this morning or whatever, but in this letter to the Philippian church, Paul has been using this picture of citizenship and the understanding of Roman citizenship uh, with its rights and with its responsibility to speak to this church and to call them to live lives as those who have been colonized by heaven. They're citizens of heaven. As Christians, as followers of Jesus, they were and we are citizens of heaven. And so loyalty to our king, loyalty to the kingdom of which we are a part of, is to define our life as, as followers of Christ. And so in this letter, in the call of this letter, Paul has been saying this, live a life worthy of the gospel. Uh, stand firm together in one spirit. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. And really for me, the verse that's been the lens that I've been looking through this at this text through is Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. It's going to come up on the screen and it says this. Only let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so as we come to chapter 4, Paul's been again talking about this concept of citizenship. He's going to get really practical now. And... You know, I would say this, I, 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 think, I think when you talk about a relationship with Jesus, the reality is this, is that too, too many followers of Christ seem to live in a relationship with God that's always based on the past, you know? And maybe, maybe you might say they linger in the Garden of Gethsemane. They're lingering at the cross of Golgotha rather than at the empty tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And then there are those who, 
who followed Jesus and they spent all their time living in the future. Waiting for the coming of Christ and for them the reality of God's presence is something that they think is futuristic and that, that happens when Jesus returns. Now I'm not, I'm not bashing looking back at the cross. Of course not. Absolutely not. Not a chance. Uh, the cross is the bearing point for our lives with Jesus and I'm not I, at the same time, I'm not bashing looking forward. That, that's totally important. We need to look forward to Christ's return. This, the scripture says that is the hope that purifies us as the followers of Jesus Christ. But I will remind you what Paul told us in Philippians chapter three, that he said this, he said, there's one thing that I'm doing. There's one thing that I'm seeking to do and that's this, to forget what is behind and to strain forward to what lies ahead Uh, He told the church, this is my desire. I want to know Jesus and I want to know the power of his resurrection. And that desire is, is based on the past and it looks forward to the future of Christ's return. But it is very present in its reality. It's today. It's about relationship with Jesus today. Because true Christianity does not... It does not postpone the presence of Jesus to something that's in the future and it does not relegate the reality of Jesus to something that was in the past but it lives with this sense that Jesus is present with us today that he is. You know for me it's, it's a funny thing to like go to the hockey camp and, and you know for lots of years I would struggle with some of my passions in life whether it's fishing or getting out on the water, or playing hockey, and things like that. And in my mind, I grew up with this church thinking where I was always separating everything. You know, this is spiritual. This is not. This is carnal. You know, this is secular. This is spiritual. And, and what we have to realize is God's made us who we are. Bring Jesus into the midst of everything. He is very present in everything that is going on in our lives. That he is. And this is what Paul is is telling us as we come to chapter four, the very presence of Jesus is reality. You know, the gospel of John, Jesus presents himself and he, and, he, and he says this, those I am statements, I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is saying those things in the present tense. And so the reality of heavenly citizenship, it's to touch our lives today. It's to touch everything. Everything we do, work, family, leisure, everything, Jesus touches it all. And so as Paul talks about this reality of heavenly citizenship touching our life, we come to verse one, he says this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. He says, stand firm. And what this is, is this is the call to be steadfast. To be steadfast. Philippians 1.27 was, we looked at that just quick this morning. I read it to you. It's like the bottom slice of the bread and he's layered on all, all, all the stuff that's in the sandwich. And now he's putting the top on the sandwich for me when I, when I read that. And um, he says again, be steadfast. Be firm. You know, there's, there are those who with Jesus are kind of like the summer, like the thermometer today. You know, the mercury rises and they flash up in zeal. They spring out of the gates like, 
I was thinking of Hussein Bolt just dashing out of the out of the gate and then the 100 meter sprint is over and the thermometer drops and spiritual life slows to the pace of a snail for them and laziness and lethargy comes and that's not enjoyable Christian life nor is it a, a witness to those who know Jesus. Paul says be steadfast. In life with Jesus, endurance wins, stand firm. Not a sprint, but a marathon. And the only way to be stable and to be fast is what he says, stand firm in the Lord. That's your position. Stand firm in the Lord because the only hope of stability is to build your life upon the rock. Just like the old story that Jesus told about those who built their life upon the sand and those who built their life upon the rock. And if you want to be stable, to be steadfast, then one of the things that you need to know, and I think this is the filter for this text this morning, is this, is that, that, that Jesus is present. That Jesus is near. That he is close at hand. That is, that is the message that Jesus preached, even when he physically appeared on the earth 2,000 years ago. What did he say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said, it's near you. It's close to you. It's present. He said, it's near you and it will be in you. And then he said, as he, as he was getting ready to depart, he said, and I am with you even to the very end of the age. The presence of God, the reality that he's near, that he's at hand. Paul says, this helps us stand firm. You know, it makes me think about uh, when Moses had his encounter with meeting the Lord and God introduced himself and God introduced his name to Moses. He said, I am that I am. And to me, that's present. He's saying, I, I'm present. God introduced himself as close at hand. It means I will be what you need me to be in the present. And so Jesus is not relegated to the cross. We know that. And he's not absent until his return. No, he is very present and he is a very present help in the time of need, the scripture says. And so heaven's reality, the reality of citizenship is to touch every area of life today. And so Paul begins to address some practical things. Check out verse two. Now I never know how to say these names. I treat Yodia. I don't know. I think it says Yoda. I entreat Yoda and I entreat Sin. Tiki, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. People always joke about these two ladies. I don't know if you've heard the joke about them being called odious and suntachi because they've got this, they've got some strife happening between them. And in the church, two women in the church and between them was some sort of issue. Paul doesn't tell us what it is. It's significant enough to this point that Paul is in Rome and they're in Philippi and he knows about it and he's writing to address it. So it's affecting the church. It's a check affecting the body of Christ. And, and notice Paul doesn't say this. He doesn't say, well, let's find out who's right and let's find out who's wrong. He says instead this. The Lord is present. Your names are written in the book of life. 
this is not the time to squabble. And I love that. Here's this interpersonal conflict. And I'm sure technically somebody was right and technically somebody was wrong. But whatever it was, spiritually speaking, they were both wrong. They were both wrong because the Lord wanted them to be gracious and forgiving and merciful to one another. And maybe that's, maybe that's a word for somebody here this morning, right there. You know, in the technical sense of an interpersonal conflict, you say, well, I'm right. I'm right and they're wrong. But could it be that you're just wrong? Because God wants you to be merciful. Because God's calling you to be forgiving. Because God is calling you to be gracious as he has been gracious to you. I found myself in one of those recently. I, I, I think that technically, I was justified. I, I was in the right. But in reality, in that discussion was the need to be right. Or was the mature thing just to give grace? And, and I felt like the Lord was like telling me, don't dig in your heels. Don't dig in your heels. And the outcome was, in, in that situation was positive as I submitted to the spirit and extended grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I have to say, I wish I did that all the time. Because <laughs> usually I dig my heels in. That's me, you know. But let's ask this this morning. Are you digging in your heels? Are you, are you digging in your heels? Like, does it matter? Is God asking you to be gracious and forgiving and merciful? And are you digging in your heels? You know, there was a time when Jesus sent out the 12. Remember, they, they got divided up two by two and he he sent them out and they began to go out and preach the kingdom and they were working miracles and casting out demons and they came back to, to meet Jesus and they were jacked. Like they came back, they were excited about ministry and the things that God was doing and they said, Jesus, even the demons are submitting to us in your name. And, and what did Jesus say to them? He said this, he said, don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in, in what you've seen, but rejoice in this fact that your names are written down in the book of life. And it's interesting that this is the same appeal Paul makes right here to these two, these two ladies. The book of life and the reality of having your name written down therein means this. I don't need to dig in my heels. To these two ladies, you, you don't need to dig in your heels over this situation. The, the knowledge that Jesus is present in our lives, the, the reality that we are going to be with him in eternity and, and heaven and its reality should keep a smile on our faces every day and even help us in the midst of interpersonal conflict. And, and as I consider this text this morning, I just say, well, maybe the Lord just wants you to let it go. Maybe it's time to bring that issue to the foot of him whose feet were nailed to the cross. Yoda and Sintiki, <laughs> agree in the Lord, he says. Agree in the Lord, be of the same mind. Your names are written down in heaven. And then in verse four, he says this. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You know, Paul's told us this throughout this letter. He said, I'm not afraid to tell you this again and again. It's good for me to tell you. And I think about this, I think, well, you know, the truth is I can't always rejoice in my circumstances. Can't always rejoice in the things that are going on in my life, but I can do this. I can rejoice in the Lord. And, and the truth is, this is actually a command. This is an imperative. This is something that is not, he's not saying this is optional. This is something that we are to enter into as followers of Christ Jesus. You commanded, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. Now, when I think about that, I think, man, your reaction is probably like mine, a command. <laughs> You're commanding me to rejoice in the Lord? How am I supposed to do that? Because sometimes we're, we're dealing with stuff. Going on, situations, things going on. Well, the key is verse five. Look at verse five. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. See, the secret of joy is realized in companionship, in friendship, again, in the nearness of Jesus. Because walking with Jesus is something that is very present. Not relegated to the past, not restricted to the future. It's today. Remember when the disciples were in that boat crossing the Sea of Galilee? Jesus was sleeping in the stern of the boat and they come face to face with a storm. The wind begins to blow at them. The waves begin to, to uh, rise and break over the bow and they're straining at the oar and at face value. Everything appears to be lost and then they wake Jesus up. Say, hey man, don't you care? We're about to die in here. And he stands up. He rebukes the wind and the waves and immediately everything is still. And then Jesus rebukes those 12 men for their lack of faith. See, what they failed to recognize in their life was the very presence of Jesus, even in the midst of the storm. You know, when life brings a storm, say, I can't rejoice. I'd say this to you. Look for Jesus. Look for him. He's right there with you. You know, any of you have been through a storm in life and then you, you get to the point where you're on the other side of that storm and you get a chance to look back in hindsight and to think about it from the far shore. What you recognize is this. You go, oh, there he was. He was there all along. I was freaking out. I was losing my mind and Jesus was there the whole time. Now I'm on the other side of it. I can see it clearly. I thought he had abandoned me. And you know, the truth is, is you can, as a follower of Jesus, as those who have Jesus present in their life, you can bear more than you think. You, you can endure anything. You can believe God in the face of a storm when when the overshadowing presence of Jesus is realized. Look for him. He's right there. Whatever storm you're facing. And it's because of the presence of Jesus that Paul says what he says next. Then these are two of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Verse six and seven. Do not be anxious about anything. 
But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What's Paul saying? You don't have to be anxious about anything. Why? Because Jesus is present always. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I mean, we could just go on and on. He taught about the sparrows and birds falling to the ground. He said, I'll look after you. You seek my kingdom. You know, Paul begins to talk here about anxiety. What is anxiety? <laughs> anxiety is what's plaguing our culture, isn't it? It's the plague of our culture. And it's interesting, what anxiety is, is like feeling of worry, nervousness, unease about something that's unknown or some unknown outcome. And it, it actually means this, it means to be pulled in different directions. Your mind being pulled in different directions. Hope pulls you in one direction. Worry pulls you in another. And in the process, what happens is you're pulled apart. Your mind is pulled apart. The old English root of worry actually means this to strangle. That's what anxiety does, doesn't it? Worry does that. It's like it strangles you. It's funny because I actually get neck pain, you know. Then I got to go see the chiropractor or the massage therapist to get, get tweaked up when, when I, I'm letting worry and anxiety get to me. You know, some people get headaches, ulcers, or some physical manifestation in their body due to anxiety, worry, and inability to cope with life. And, and, and so worry does that. It's like it strangles you. And it's interesting here that Paul's talking about joy. He's talking about the very presence of Jesus and the reality that the Lord is near, that he's at hand, that we're to live accordingly. Well, what does anxiety and worry do? It robs you of those realities. It robs you of that joy. Uh, now, you, you know this, but I think that it's important that I say this this morning, that from a spiritual point of view, Anxiety is simply wrong thinking. Uh, the next thing, actually we're going to kick into it next week, is Paul's going to talk about right thinking. But spiritually, anxiety is about wrong, wrong thinking in your mind, and it can also be about wrong feelings in your heart, wrong feelings about circumstances, about people, about situations. And anxiety and worry is like the greatest thief of joy. And sometimes I feel like a jerk in my house because, uh, well, for lots of reasons, I feel like a jerk in my house. But, um, you know, sometimes Lisa will tell me something that's like she's concerned about it. And, and I'll say to her, well, quit worrying about it. Well, don't worry. <laughs> like, get over it. Like, it's that simple. Like, it's like, oh, oh, don't worry. Okay, I'll fix. Done. And, you know, just dudes, husbands, word of advice. Not good instruction, okay? Don't do as I do. And, you know, if only it was that simple as saying to the person who's worrying, don't worry about it. I said that to Shona this morning. I'm like, good grief. I'm such an idiot. I'm going to preach on this. I'm sorry, Shona, wherever you are. We were talking about the pig roast. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, worry and anxiety is a crazy thing. It's like a bank robbery. It's like an inside job. It's happening from the inside. There is a thief at work. Inside job. 
So what's the solution? Look again with me at verse 6. Paul says, do not be anxious about every, anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be no, made known to God. The solution, Paul says here, is prayer. That's the solution. And Paul uses three words for prayer that help us kind of get a structure for what he's saying. They're, they're prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. All right? Now, prayer is just that general word for kind of making your requests made known to God. But prayer really does this. It encompasses the idea of worship, of devotion, of adoration. You know, when you find yourself worrying, what, what you want to do is this, is you want to train yourself so that the first response of your life is to get alone with God. Anxiety comes, worry comes. I need to get alone with God. And firstly, I need to worship. I need to worship. You know, put some worship music on. Don't you love that? It's like an amazing thing. Just to, maybe you got, you got something going on, you're concerned about it. Put the worship music on so that there's something that begins to help you to put your focus where it needs to be. And adoration and worship is needed because what it does is that it begins to put things in their proper place. Worry does this. It takes God off the throne. Worry says Jesus is relegated to the past. Hope is in the distant future. And worship and adoration brings Christ into the present. Brings the working of the spirit right into the present in your life. You know, worry, I would say, does this. It, it tends to push God off the throne and it makes the issue, whatever it is, makes it bigger than God. And worship and adoration and, and the place of prayer begins to Put God back into his spot in your life to say, you belong on the throne, King Jesus. You know, I love the story in 1 Kings chapter 8 where Solomon stood before the throne of God. They were, they were dedicating the temple. And the Bible tells us this in 1 Kings chapter 8 that, that he raised his hands to the Lord as he stood before the temple. I love that position. That's a good position to raise your hands. You know, in worship, it's, it's, it's childlike for me. It's like, Daddy, I come before, I come in submission. I acknowledge you're my father. I'm like a kid right now. Lord, lift, you gotta lift me up. Solomon stood before that, that throne, acknowledging the Lord in heaven, and he raised his hands, and he said this, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no one like you. In heaven above or earth below, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. That's God in his proper place. That's why I love that prayer. There's no God like you in heaven above or earth below. You keep covenant. You're steadfast in your love. God, help me. To walk before you with all my heart. We need to know that about the Lord. That there's no one like him. Heaven above or earth below. We need to remind ourselves. God is a covenant keeping God. 
Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, Jesus said. Steadfast in love. And in the midst of worry and anxiety, what's happening? Our heart's deceiving us. That's the wicked nature of the heart to deceive us about the reality of who God is. And our heart can lie to us. Our minds can deceive us about the uncertainty of our future. We can be pulled apart between worry and hope and anxiety begins to strangle you. Then you come to the place of prayer. Begin to worship and pour out the devotion of your heart and, and, and just declare to God how great he is. I love some of the songs we sang this morning. God, my rock. Holy is your name in all the earth. What, what were the words? I, I, it's like, they were awesome. Can we sing that when we close this morning? Can, wherever you are, okay. Holy is your name in all the earth. Righteous are your ways, just and merciful, holy Holy, true, God are you, whatever it was. It's so good. There's no God like you. See, we have to see the greatness and the majesty of God. We have to realize that he's bigger than anything we face. Bigger than any of our problems. And sometimes when filled with anxiety and worry, what we do is this. Is we, we rush into the place of prayer and we just begin to dump on the Lord. Say, I got this going on, I got this going on. And and we're so busy dumping on him and looking for help that it doesn't sometimes help. And what we have to recognize is that the first step is you need to come do this. Worship. Express your adoration. In, In your thinking, get Jesus back on the throne. Prayer. But then Paul says, We need to begin to express that need for supplication. That's sharing with God our needs and our problems and asking him to supply. See, once Jesus is back on the throne of our lives and in our thinking, then we begin to tackle the circumstance, the situation, the person, the this, the that, whatever it is. You know, Jesus said this, a verse you know, know well, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks the door will be opened. And he was saying this to his disciples and to those he was teaching is that you need to be earnest in your asking and your seeking and your knocking. To me, that, that, that speaks of a progression, of a hunger, of a desire, of a returning to that place. Not a one and done, but just there seeking God. And then comes Thanksgiving. We, we, we teach our kids from a young age to say thank you. Because it's proper to say thank you. I kind of love that about hockey culture actually. Like we have really, that's really built into hockey culture. And I know a lot of sports culture. It's like say thank you. Tell your coach thank you. Say thank you to your parents for bringing you to the ring. Say thank you to your counselors for having an awesome week at, say thanks to your worship. Say, you know, it's like say thank you. Say thank you because it's the right thing to do. That's why we teach our children to do it. Because nobody likes a spoiled child. (laughs) Anybody here like spoiled children? Think of lots of things about spoiled children, but like is not one of them, right? 
Because no one likes a spoiled child that takes for granted the generosity of their parent. And others. Because there's something wrong about it. It's like just innate in you. You know it's wrong, it's wrong for a child to be ungrateful. And Thanksgiving is this expression of gratitude to God. Let me ask you. Are you thankful to God? Are you thankful? When's the last time you said thank you? Does he even know? Or are you just a spoiled child? I, I, I was going over this. I, I have to repent. Thinking about that. Oh God. I'll say thank you to you enough. And the question is this. Does he know? Does he know that you're thankful for the things that you, he's done in your life? Do you thank him? And so Paul calls us to prayer in the midst of our anxiety. Prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. And verse 7 tells us the most amazing result that will happen. The, the application of this promise if we will do these things. He says in verse 7, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Love that. It says the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The picture for guarding of your heart and mind is that of a garrison of soldiers. Like soldiers stationed in a fortress. Get that picture in your head. He says the peace of God will guard you like a fortress with all of its soldiers stationed around on duty. Nothing will get into your heart or mind. Peace will take up residence. Remember Paul, like he's writing this and where is he? He's in Rome. He's chained to a guard as he writes this. I bet he's just like, Man, this is so awesome. So he's writing it. I can just, I just think that. He's penning this letter. And he's guarded day and night by this soldier. soldier he's chained to him. And yet at the same time, what's he chained to? The peace of God that's guarding his heart and his mind. It's, it's amazing that the Lord says, I I'll deal with those two areas that are causing you trouble, your heart and your mind. I'll deal with them. I always find it amazing um, because when you read this verse, because th this is not a promise that situation will change or that circumstance will change. Did you catch that while you're reading that? It's not the promise that anything changed with regards to the person, the situation, the problem, whatever, whatever is at the root of worry and anxiety. It's not the promise that that will necessarily change, but, but it is the promise uh, of a quiet confidence and a heart of peace in the midst of whatever's going on. Not the promise of the absence of trouble or trial or suffering or problem, but it is this promise that, that, that regardless of the circumstance, that God's peace will rule in your heart and in your mind. Why? Because the Lord's near, He's at hand. That's where his kingdom is. It's at hand. It is near you. And as Jesus said, it is in you or it will be in you. And, and the heart and the thrust of this text is really this. 
live in the presence of Jesus. I'm actually saying this this morning. When my heart is overwhelmed, I will look to you alone. God, my rock, God, my rock. They were practicing this morning. I'm like, Ken, that was like perfect song, man. I don't know. He might have been cheating looking ahead or something. The Lord is at hand. When interpersonal conflict comes, the Lord is at hand. When joy is failing, the Lord is present. When you're irritated and you think there's no reason why you should yield to that person and you should just dig in your heels, the Lord is at hand. When worry and anxiety are overwhelming, the Lord is at hand. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, what, P- what Paul says here about peace is, is astounding, right? It surpasses understanding. You experienced it? It's like the greatest thing. It's a miracle. It's a miracle to have God change your mind like that. Go, wow, I just went from total anxiety and now there is a peace that cannot be defined or described. It surpasses my understanding. Jesus said that. He said, I'll give you peace and it won't be as the world gives. Be anxious for nothing. Nothing in the entirety of life should give us anxiety because there is nothing that is, that is not within the realm of what God's care for you. Not within the realm of his presence. Nothing too small, nothing so big that Jesus isn't present, that your heavenly father doesn't take notice. And so the call here is this. When the least bit of anxiety begins to to rise up, go to your knees. Go in your prayer walk. Go to your prayer closet. One of the characters I love in the Old Testament is Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a king who loved the Lord and he had a deep walk with the Lord. But when the Assyrians and their army of a million million soldiers were gathering and there was a threat against Jerusalem, in his anxiety, Hezekiah made a big mistake. He thought he'd bribe the enemy. He thought he'd buy the enemy off. And so the scripture tells us that he actually went to the temple. He peeled the gold off the doors of the temple. Put together some cash. And tried to bribe and buy off the enemy. And you know the reality is, is like you read it, he bought some time. He got some time. They disappeared for a little while and they got distracted by other things. But then the scripture tells us that Isaiah came to him and Isaiah rebuked him. You didn't turn to the Lord, man. You turned to your own resources. You thought your cash was going to fix the issue. And and Isaiah basically says to Hezekiah, he said, you know, God was using this. God wanted you to return to him in the hour of your need. You thought money would fix it. And so he bought time, but guess what happened? You know, Isaiah says, you need to be seeking the Lord. And the Assyrians came back. That's what happened. They came back. And when they did, Sennacherib, the the king of the Assyrians, his general fired off this letter. It's a great story in the Old Testament. You need to go on and look it up. 
He, he fired a letter just threatening Jerusalem, saying, call out to your God, cry out to your God. Just mocking the Lord, mocking the people. And when Hezekiah had tried his bribe and he tried his this and he tried it, and he finally listened to the word of Isaiah and he took that letter and he laid it out before the Lord in the place of prayer and he said, Lord, look what this man is saying about you and saying about your people and saying about your city, your nation. And he began to pour out his heart to the Lord and, and then the Lord gave a word to Isaiah. And Isaiah came from the presence of the Lord and, and he told Hezekiah, the Lord has spoken. Not one person in the city is going to die. In fact, there's not even going to be an arrow shot into the city. And Sennacherib came and his army. And, and the truth is, is that not an arrow was fired. That night, the angel of the Lord came and he slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And the Assyrians packed up and with their tail between their legs, they went. And not an arrow was fired. You know, there's that old line, you know, turn your cares into prayers. That's it, right there. That's it, because the Lord is present. He's present. He's present in your life. He is at hand. You don't, you don't have to try to buy anything, purchase anything. That is not the solution for your anxiety. It's to come to the Lord. And so as we tackle through this text and just, just go through it, I, I want to remind you, when, when interpersonal conflict comes, the Lord's at hand. When joy is failing, he is present. When you're irritated and there's no reason to yield and you want to dig your heels in, man, does it matter? The Lord is at hand. When worry and anxiety comes, the place of prayer because Jesus is present. Look for him. Look for him. 